you have your Bible with you, would you turn to uh, Matthew chapter 21? If you do not, there should be a, a Bible in the pew rack near you, and if not, look on with uh, one of our members, if you will. And while you're turning to Matthew chapter 21, I'd like to uh, uh, just acknowledge two of our, our guests uh, with us today. First of all, not really a guest, he's actually a member here, uh, but he's not often able to be with us. Levi is back there and uh, worshiping with us this morning. And uh, make sure that you have opportunity to uh, uh, speak to him. And then uh, a man who's a, a faithful partner in our ministry, one who translates for us when we are in Ecuador, uh, almost exclusively, uh, Brian Rubio is with us. And Brian is seated on the front row here next to my wife. And uh, he will be uh, uh, with us for uh, about a month. And uh, he'll be interning with us and helping us with some things. And so you make sure you reach out to him and uh, uh, take him out for a meal or two or three. And we've got to fatten him up a little bit. We're going to find a, find a good wife for him. <laughs> that was a cheap shot, Brian. I shouldn't have done that. Hopefully you have found the, uh, uh, the chapter in the Gospel of Matthew, uh, we began this last week and we saw the, the humble king, the Lord Jesus, coming into Jerusalem amidst the, the amazing accolades of people who were just confused. They had a great expectation of, of, of who this Messiah was going to be. In fact, that's, that's how we ended last week. Who, who is this? I mean, they knew his name, they knew where he was from, uh, they knew he was a prophet, but who is this? And, and the answer to the question is, this is the great king, this is the Messiah, this is the Savior who has absolute right to rule our lives. That's what we're reading about on the pages of Holy Writ, our Savior, and he is reflecting the character that you and I need to have. Not buying into all of the accolades and the entertainment and all of the things that, that the, the so-called Christian cult would, would offer us today, but the humble uh, teaching and preaching and sharing and living of the gospel of those who are sinners that have been redeemed. That's the church. That's who we are. Not jockeying and vying for position or power. Not running for office in, in the denomination or running for office in the church or anything else. We are simply the faithful children of God gathered together to serve Him on this little corner here. That's who He is. And as we uh, come to verse 12, we see him coming to the temple, and man, expectations were just high. They, they, they were amazingly high. I mean, they've been shouting in the street, Hosanna to the Son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. These are all accolades for Messiah. And they had a huge expectation of what Jesus was going to do. And they expected him to go to the temple, and, and, and there he goes. 
And they expected him to enter the temple, and so he does. But instead of going into the seat of authority, he never gets past the, the, uh, the court of the Gentiles, the outside court. He never goes any further than that. And then he does something that no one expected, and that's what we're about to read. And as a result of, of what we're about to read, the, the next question is not who is this, but what is he doing? What is he doing? So let's look at verse 12, and we'll read down through verse 22. Matthew chapter 21. And Jesus entered the temple and drove out all who sold and bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. And he said to them, It is written, my house shall be called a house of prayer, but you make it a den of robbers. And the blind and the lame came to him in the temple, and he healed them. But when the chief priests and the scribes saw the wonderful things that he did, and the children crying out in the temple, Hosanna to the son of David, they were indignant. And they said to him, Do you hear what these are saying? And Jesus said to them, yes. Have you never read out of the mouth of infants and nursing babies you have prepared praise? And leaving them, he went out of the city to Bethany and he lodged there. In the morning, as he was returning to the city, he became hungry, and seeing a fig tree by the wayside, he went to it and found nothing on it but only leaves. And he said to it, may no fruit ever come from you again. And the fig tree withered at once. When the disciples saw it, they marveled, saying, how did the fig tree wither at once? And Jesus answered them, truly, I say to you, if you have faith and do not doubt, you will not only do what has been done to the fig tree, but even if you say to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea, it will happen. Whatever you ask in prayer, you will receive if you have faith. Father, open the ears of our understanding to glean that which you desire us to know from these verses this morning. Again, I pray that you would change each of our hearts in accordance with your will. Through Christ I pray. Amen. If, if you go and read Mark's account of this, you're going to notice just a few shifts in, in the order of events, okay? And I don't want you to be confused by that. And I want to remind you of, 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 of this. And we talked about this last week, and I think it's important when we're looking at various uh, episodes and narratives from the different Gospels, each writer is trying to bring home a different aspect of Jesus' character and make a point about him, a different point. And so while Mark, in his account of Jesus coming to the temple, tells us that a night passed... Instead of going straight to the temple, a night passed. Matthew just gets Jesus straight to the temple because that was his point. 
I mean, that is the point of the whole thing. His his whole purpose in coming to Jerusalem at this moment was to go to the temple. That was it. So Matthew takes us straight there. Mark gives us a few different details about the events and how they occurred, but the, the end result is the same. Christ came to the temple and he saw there that which was displeasing. The Lord was suddenly coming to his temple. That scene, it takes us back to the prophet, prophet Malachi. Turn there, will you? Just, it's back one book. Right at the end of the, of the Old Testament. Malachi, look at chapter 3. Well, actually, let's look at chapter 2, the last verse for, for a moment. Verse 17 of chapter 2 of, of Malachi 2 tells us that, that God is tired of the hypocrisy. And the, the reversed morals, the spiritual blindness. For you have wearied the Lord with your words. You're talking a good talk, Israel. But it's just empty words. But you ask, how have we wearied him? And the response comes by saying, everyone who is evil is good in the sight of the Lord. And he delights in them. Or by asking, where is the just God of justice? And in response to this, we come to chapter 3. Let's read verses 1 through 4. Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me, and the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. And the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. But who can endure the day of his coming? Who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire and like fuller's soap. He will sit as a refiner and a purifier of silver, and he will purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold and silver, and they will bring offerings in righteousness to the Lord. Then the offering of Judah and Jerusalem will be pleasing to the Lord as in the days of old and as in former years. Look up at verse 1. Behold my messenger, I send him. And we've had this quoted already. It's quoted in all three of the synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And in every case, they refer to whom? John the Baptist. John the Baptist, the forerunner of the coming king, the forerunner of the coming Christ. We have studied about him several times in our study through the Gospel of Matthew. He is my messenger in that case. Then the Lord who followed, right there as we read on, the Lord who follows was Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And in fact, instead of using Yahweh there, he uses Adon, which is for, for, for Lord. It was pointing to the fact that Christ would come to the temple. And in our readings throughout uh, the Gospels and through the life of Jesus through the different Gospels, we see him coming to the temple. When's the first time he goes to the temple? When he's eight days old. He's taken there to be uh, circumcised and to be dedicated into the service of the Lord. That was the first time that he came. 
And likely he has come every year, at least since he was 12 years old, every year to the temple three times a year to come to Jerusalem for the festivals. Because his father was a righteous man, his father was a godly man, he was a good Jew, and he would come to Jerusalem on those three appointed occasions. And surely Jesus had been there many, many times. And now most notably, well, John records him coming in a similar episode as this at the, at the beginning of his gospel in John chapter 2. We have now the Lord coming to the temple and cleansing it. And cleansing it. Malachi, it's interesting, it says, the Lord whom you seek, back in verse 1, Malachi 3, and, and the Lord whom you seek, isn't that interesting? They have wearied the Lord, they have been doing all sorts of evil, calling it good, all sorts of, 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 of good, calling it evil, turning everything morally upside down. They have done all manner of things like that. They have, 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 have delighted in everything except God, and they're asking, where is the God of justice and that's who they're seeking, justice. <laughs> and they don't realize it. They don't want justice. If you're calling for justice with God, you are calling for the wrong thing. You need to call for the mercy of God, the salvation of God, the grace of God, all of those things, but don't call for the God of justice because if the God of justice appears on the scene of your life, you will die and go to hell because there's not a person in this room that doesn't deserve that. That's what we deserve. That's justice. And so Malachi says, who can endure the day of his coming? You're asking for the God of justice? Who can endure the day of his coming? And who can stand when he appears? But what they were really crying for is that which the human heart has greatest need, deliverance. They wanted to be vindicated and delivered from the oppression of the nations around them whether it be uh, uh, the, the Assyrians or the Babylonians or any other nation. And now in the New Testament context, it is the Romans. No matter who it was, they wanted to be delivered from that. And Micah says, the coming Messiah will bring judgment. And judgment, we understand now, is this for us. It is vindication and, and salvation for those who come to faith in Christ. Repenting of sin. Stop calling evil good and good evil, but now agreeing with God that sin is sin and righteousness is righteousness. Coming to faith in Christ Jesus. That is what will happen when the Lord comes Second time. But for the wicked, for those who reject the gospel, for those who are even hypocrites, naming the name of Christ, but truly not born again, is punishment and condemnation. And so Malachi really, in, in, in reading that, you will see that he has mingled Christ's two advents, his two comings. 
Yes, here he is coming to the temple in his humanity, but when he returns, he will come in power and judgment. And most of of Judaism neglected uh, him coming in humility. The whole suffering servant idea was just anathema to them. They hated that idea. No, no, he's coming. And that's why they had expectation of Jesus going into the temple and now seizing power and authority on earth and driving out the enemies. That's what they wanted. And make no mistake, that is going to occur because the Lord will come in judgment. But the Jews saw themselves as righteous. They were the righteous ones to be vindicated, and yet the Lord God says, you all are the ones that are twisting the law. You all are the ones that are twisting the message. The people who should have reflected the godliness of, of Yahweh the most were rejecting His truths. And so by now, the time that Jesus is living, uh, the Jews had just arrived, especially the religious leaders. But the Gentiles, they were the wicked. They were the wicked. And so Christ comes to the temple to purify it as, as, as He is coming. Who can stand in the day of His appearing? He's going to purify the latter-day Levites. That's us. The chosen generation, the royal priesthood about which we read earlier. He is in the process of purifying us as individuals and purifying the church. He wants us to gleam like gold and silver. He wants a a, a priesthood that is approved and perfected to carry out sacred ministry, to carry the gospel to the nations. And when Malachi, if you read on through there, when he's talking about uh, 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 the descendants of Levi and Aaron, he's not talking about the physical descendants. He's talking about us, the church. A cleansed and sanctified priesthood. And so that carries us back to the answer to the question that they could have proposed. What is he he doing? Here we see the prefiguring of the coming judgment. Still a day of grace, but there is coming a day of judgment when no one will stand before the Lord. And so having come into apparent triumph into the city, now entering the temple, all of the expectations of the crowds and of the religious leaders even are are watching, and instead Jesus cleans the house. And of course what was taking place there, and many of you know this, but for those who might not know it, is in order to to make sacrifice, you had to have animals. And in order to buy animals, you had to have money. But not just any money would do. It had to be the right kind of money. It had to be the temple shekels. That was the only thing that could be used. So they have set up all of these purchasing stations all over the court of the Gentiles. And even turned over, it says, the the chairs of those that were selling the doves, pigeons, Leviticus 5 says if a person is too poor to be able to afford a a, a ram or a lamb, that they are 
able to, to use a, a pigeon or a dove in its place. But as we read historical records, and particularly the Jewish records of, of later years, and must go back to this because Jesus turned over their tables, tables, they were charging exorbitant prices for the little birds. And the poor were already poor, and now they're even poorer and suffering even more. And these religious types are just literally putting their, their, their foot on the throats of the poor. And so in fulfillment of prophecy, and that's what all of this is, prophet Zechariah said in, in chapter 14, verse 1, a day was coming when no merchant would remain in the house of the Lord. And then you go to Isaiah chapter 56, verse 7, and Jeremiah 7, 11, and you can see that Jesus has merged these two portions of, 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 of Scripture. What was intended to be a house of prayer, and Mark in his account in, in chapter 11, verse 17, says it's a prayer, a place of prayer for all the nations, speaks to the court of the Gentiles where Jesus is. And instead of, of, of it being a place of prayer, there's so much commotion and animals and money, and people, and can you imagine trying to pray over in the corner somewhere, trying to get your life right with God while all of this is going on? There's no worship taking place there. When worship just gets noisy and loud and, and, and it's all about the people and it's all about us and it's all about what we want and what we like and all of those things, when all that takes place, it has ceased to be worship. He says it's a den of robbers. And that doesn't mean that every merchant in there, I mean, this was a necessary function, Okay. It was the law that, that the sacrifices and animals be, be bought with certain coins. That was the law, but it could have been done in a completely different way, in a completely different place. But not all of them were robbers, but the whole system was so corrupt and so noisy. No one could worship. And what we see here is that the Lord Jesus cares about worship. People say, oh, we can worship any way we want to. I always like the guys that want to worship on the fishing boat or worship on a golf course. Actually, I don't like that. But there's plenty around. Oh, I can worship by communing with nature. Okay, do that Monday through Saturday, and on Sunday, come and worship with the people of God and praise Him together, because this is what we're going to be doing for all eternity, not fishing and, and uh, playing golf. I don't know, is there a golf course in heaven? Probably not. That's got to be part of a fallen system, right? I'm just kidding. Those of you who are golfers, please forgive me. I'm not coming down on your golf game. But I am coming down on anything that stands in the way of the service of the Lord and the worship of the Lord. And if you're spending all your time doing anything, it could be work, could be golf, could be good things. 
But if you're spending all of your time and devoted to those things and you are not devoted to the daily, hourly, even moment-by-moment moment worship of Christ, then something's wrong in your life. And you need to take place what's taking place in the temple in Matthew 21. You need Jesus to come in and clear off a spot and throw a fit in it. It's to clean off the tables of your life. Overturn your chairs of comfort and ease. I mean, Christ's crucifixion is looming. And he knew that the leadership was trying to kill him, turn the people against him. And he knew that the cries and the shouts of the people in the streets of Hosanna, that they had a wrong expectation, that they were not expecting a Savior who would come and be the complete, total, perfect sacrifice for the sins of his people. They were expecting something completely earthly and totally geared toward them. He knew all of this. And yet in this, he shows that the worship of God is always on his heart and always on his mind. But he's also showing that in not too many days, the whole end of the sacrificial system was going to take place. And while it continued long after, the complete sacrificial system should have ended when Jesus Christ cried, it is finished. Father, into thy hands I commend my spirit. And he gave up his life. And the perfect sacrifice was made. I would encourage you sometime, just go back to the book of Hebrews. We don't have time this morning. Go back to the book of Hebrews and start in chapter 9, around verse 23, and just read down through, through uh, uh, verse 14 of, of chapter 10 of the book of Hebrews and see that he had come and he was the complete and the perfect sacrifice. He was the perfect high priest. He was the perfect man, God. No more need for the sacrificial system. He gives another example. Matthew uh, puts it next, and Mark splits it up, kind of envelopes it around the cleansing of the, of the temple. But it is the coming to the fig tree. We read that a, a moment ago. Look down, skip down for a moment uh, to verse 18. Let's read that again, verse 18 and, and 19. I guess I better get back to Matthew and out of Malachi. In the morning, as he was returning to the city from Bethany, he became hungry. And seeing a fig tree by the wayside, he went to it and found nothing on it but only leaves. And he said to it, may no fruit ever come from you again. And the fig tree withered at once. Now, there's a lot of liberal thinkers that really get irritated about this. Because they love trees more than they do people. And uh, you know, I like trees, too, but I'm not a tree hugger. I have hugged a tree, but that was when I was trying to get up higher. But, but they say, oh, son of God wouldn't have done this. This can't be true. Folks, he's the creator. He owns the trees. 
He owns the cattle on a thousand hills. If he wants to slaughter a cow, he can do it. If he wants to wither a tree, he can do it. But it wasn't really about the tree. Mark tells us that it wasn't the season for, for fig trees to bear fruit. And, but yet there's this lush vegetation, and that gives the promise of, of good fruit. Now, not at my house. Martha and I have lush vegetation coming out of our, our earth boxes in the back, but we've got just very little fruit, except we can grow jalapeno peppers. <laughs> Anybody needs any, let me know. But there was an expectation of fruit. And, and when my tomatoes come up and they've got, got leaves on them and all this, I expect them to produce fruit. And so far they haven't. Jesus goes to the fig tree and he expected to, to find fruit. Now, we don't know why he was hungry, why he didn't eat breakfast in Bethany before he left. We don't know any of those things. We don't have insight into that because the point of this is that, that the cursing of the fig tree is more than a, a picture of Jesus being upset because he didn't have food. I mean, we've seen his righteous anger, have we not? He cleared, the, cleansed the temple because he desired the worship of his father and prayer to his father to be held in decently and in an orderly fashion. Righteous anger, human anger, but human righteous anger. We have the right to be angry and not sin. And the Lord Jesus showed us that. But this is not just selfishness. This is an example for his disciples. And he acts out this parable through the cursing of the pig, fig tree. And he shows that if Israel would not repent, respond to his cleansing, turn from their sin, turn to right worship, put their faith and trust in him, produce and bear fruit of righteousness, that which the Lord desires, then, like the fig tree, they would perish. And it is a picture of the end of the sacrificial system, and it is actually a picture of the end of Jerusalem. For not many years past this, 70 AD, Titus and the armies of Rome would march into the streets of Jerusalem to put down the Jewish rebellion and he would have they would destroy Jerusalem and the temple, effectively ending, physically ending the sacrifice. And so Christ's curse on the fig tree was a foreshadowing of what was going to happen to hypocrites, those who, who dressed themselves as the Pharisees in beautiful robes and, 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 and had all kinds of scriptures on their, in their phylacteries and, and all types of, 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 of worship, I put that in quotes, and, and praying in the streets and all of these things. They're hypocrites, Jesus said. We'll come to read that in chapters not too far from now. You hypocrites! You're whitewashed tombs. You look beautiful on the outside, but inside you're full of dead men's bones. You're beautiful fig tree. You look like you ought to be producing fruit, and yet you are not. And in Scripture, in the Old Testament Scripture, 
particularly in Micah, if you want to go there in chapter 7, and Jeremiah in chapter 8. Israel is referred to as fig trees. And the, the land is, is referred to as producing no figs. And therefore, judgment would come. And Christ is acting out in a parabolic form, cursing upon Israel because they would not repent. Because they still had their throats, their, their, their feet on the throats of the poor. And they were still hating the Gentile who would express faith. Christ is coming and he is about to shed his blood. A new system, the new covenant in his blood with faith in Christ, repentance from sin and prayer. That is the way to God. My house should be a house of prayer. Folks, we ought to be a people of prayer. Do you think that Wednesday night after Wednesday night after Wednesday night after Wednesday night for months... Teaching on prayer, how to pray in this circumstance, how to pray for that person, how to have prayer uh, characterize your life and all of that. Do you think that we're just doing that to have something to do on Wednesday night? No, we desire for our church to be a praying church. Yes, as individuals. Yes, as families. Yes, in times of need. But we need to be gathered together, praying as one in unity, enjoying the pleasure of one another's company. We who have been redeemed by Christ, lifting up prayers that God would do something in this church. I mean, did you come this morning expecting God to do something in your life? Or did you come expecting to be bored through another one of those 45-minute sermons and then get out of here and go to lunch? Each one of us needs to come here with great expectation that Christ is going to do something to cause us to love each other more, to cause us to serve each other better, to cause us to proclaim the gospel more powerfully, to cause us to flood into the streets and into the, the, the nations themselves and share the truth of Christ, who is the only Savior. That we would become like children. Go back to, to, to verse 14. This is a, an appropriate ministry for God's house. First of all, verse 13, prayer. That's a proper ministry for the people of God. We need to be joined together in prayer. But also, look at, 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 at the praise of, of the children. Verse 14, the blind and lame came to him in the temple and he healed them. Do you know the blind and the lame were unclean? Did you know they weren't allowed in the temple? Because they had some sin or some impurity that had caused them to be this way. Therefore, they were excluded from the fellowship. Folks, we can never exclude anyone from the fellowship because they are different than we are. Christ supersedes this. He receives them. He heals them. Children sing praises to Him. 
echoing the voices of their parents. And that's an interesting thing. We don't want to spend a lot of time there. But the children, and it might have been a bunch of 12-year-old boys, but they're still children crying out in the temple, Hosanna to the son of David. Where'd they hear that? They heard it in the streets. They heard mom and dad say that. Parents, your children are looking at you. They are watching you. Church member, the children of our church are looking at you. They are watching you. How do you respond? How do you treat people? What do you talk about? God forbid that my children or my grandchildren ever learn to gossip and to talk another person down in my home. How dare they? No, I want them to love Christ, love Jesus, praise Him, glorify Him. And the children heard their parents with these messianic praises in the streets. They heard it and they repeated it. And of course, the religious rulers, they're just, they're just indignant, the scripture says. This is repulsive. And Jesus responded, and he responded by, by quoting from the Septuagint version of, of, of the book of Psalms. That's the Greek translation of the Old Testament in Psalm 8, and it's actually in the Septuagint, it's verse 3, but it's Psalm 8, 2. Children were praising Yahweh in that psalm, and so he is receiving the praise of the children. He's receiving the praises that go up to God. He is God. Truly, one who is greater than the temple had come, and he is about to fulfill all that the temple pointed to. He is about to fulfill all that the priest pointed to, all that every sacrifice pointed to. Without the shedding of blood, there can be no remission of sin, and the precious Son of God is going in a matter of days from this day to shed his blood for the sins of his people. And this whole picture, it provides the final impetus for Jesus' crucifixion. Mark helps us out with that in Mark chapter 11, verse 18. And the chief priests and the scribes heard it, and they were seeking a way to destroy him, for they feared him, because all the crowd was astonished at his teaching. See, Jesus never stopped teaching, never stopped showing compassion, never stopped purifying, never stopped proclaiming the gospel all the way to the cross. And as he exhibited himself in his full humanity, he is pro proclaiming himself to be worthy of worship. Why? Because he is fully God. So Jesus is giving the example for speaking out against a, a, a mistreatment of the worship of God. But he is also saying this is just about finished. As we think upon these things, I mentioned John chapter 2. and 
you have the purifying of the temple, and this takes place early in Jesus' ministry. And here you have it taking place right at the conclusion of Jesus' earthly ministry. So this cleansing of the temple, the right worship of God, the holiness of God's people, the, 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 the need for a perfect sacrifice, all of those things, that is brackets around the entire ministry of Jesus Christ. And that's what he has displayed, and that's what he fulfills. And so the questions come at the end of all this. Do you have the faith to proclaim judgment? I mean, Jesus told his disciples, if, 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 if you proclaim these things in faith, they will happen. If you proclaim that the end of the sacrificial system has come, it will happen. And in 70 AD, physically it did. And in, uh, at the end of Christ's life, spiritually it took place. If you have faith in keeping with the things of God, in accordance with the will of God, the desire. Folks, Christ desires us to carry the message of the gospel to the ends of the earth so that his church will escape the judgment that is coming. Yes, we preach to the ends of the earth, but we also preach in our homes and we preach right here. So what kind of example are we setting in our homes? What kind of example are we setting in the church? What is Jesus doing? They would have asked. And we ask, what's he doing in our church? And how should we respond? Well, obviously, we ought to have a lot more prayer meetings than we do uh, eating meetings. I mean, we're Baptists and we eat together often. And that's biblical. But we need to be on our faces before God together as one because we are family joined into the body of Christ and into this church. We ought to have a lot more prayer meetings. Next, and and we pay careful attention to our worship we spend a lot of time planning our worship, but uh, that the, the scriptures will build together and the songs will reflect and, and, and so that we can present a unified message from the word of God as we have been through Matthew. That's, that's important. But what about your worship? Is it an organized and structured worship? Or do you just willy-nilly run to the Scripture, do a Bible reading so you can check it off of your list, say a quick prayer, oh, God, help me get through this another day, and then you run out the door? Or is your life characterized by prayer and worship and praise? Do you find yourself just walking through the grocery store singing a song of praise? I love it when I hear somebody in the grocery or someplace and I hear them and, and they're singing a hymn that I know or a Christian song that I know. Does your life reflect that kind of worship? This is, if, if not, you need to be cleansed and purified and holy and living in such a way that you are proclaiming Christ in every way and worshiping him. Our worship is important. It's not about smoke and lights and mirrors, y'all. It's not about whether you're entertained or not. And I thank God that we have music that allows the Christian to sing from his or her heart praise and rightful, rightful glory to, to our King. Because that's what we are about, and that's what this is about. 
And then we need to be those as individuals and as a church that bears fruit in and out of season. We need to be bearing fruit. Psalm 1 says, Blessed is the one who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, does not stand in the way of sinners, does not sit in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. He's like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season. Its leaf does not wither. And all that he does, he prospers. That's the kind of lives that we are to be exhibiting and living and enjoying. Thinking upon the beauties of Christ and the law of God and the gospel that has saved us. Bearing fruit in the sharing of that life in our families, through our church, to the ends of the earth. Paul wrote to Timothy, and Timothy was a preacher boy, but the word applies to each one of us. Preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. I mean, if you look leafy, you ought to have figs on you. Doesn't matter what the season is. Reprove. Rebuke, exhort with patience and teaching. That's what our lives look like. And folks, you and I can have all the trappings of pure religion. We can look a certain way, but if we are not exhibiting holy lives before the nations, sharing the gospel with all of those who need to hear it, displaying the love of Christ and compassion, the sharing of His grace with others in an ongoing way. If we're not reaching out to all kinds of people with that truth and, and sharing the gospel and receiving them into this church, then we as individuals and we as a church, we're just a fig tree with a lot of leaves and no figs. Sometimes we withhold the gospel because we're afraid. We're afraid we'll be terminated from our jobs or made fun of. Some corners of the world to fear imprisonment and death. And Peter reminds us in 1 Peter chapter 4, if you're insulted for the name of Christ, you're blessed. And that's a sermon that Ryan Powell is preaching right now to a, a fig tree that's leafy. If you're insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. But let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or as a meddler. In other words, be pure. If you're persecuted for looking like Christ, good for you. If you're thrown into jail for stealing, then that's what you deserve. But if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. Are you glorifying God as you bear the name of Christ? For it is time, verse 17, 1 Peter 4 says, it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? 
And by a house of God there, people, uh, Peter's not talking about a building. He is talking about the church of Jesus Christ. And he didn't mean that, uh, Peter, uh, that, 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 that God was punishing believers for their sins, but that he was purifying his church. That's what God is busy doing. And he often uses suffering to provoke us as believers to make a clean break from sin and begin to look like Christ. Judgment begins with the church and purifies the church. We need to be in prayer as a house of prayer that God would purify us. And then Peter says, if the, if the righteous need that kind of refining work, like silver and gold and the refiner peering down into it and looking and removing anything that was impure, as the Lord Christ looks into His church and walks among the lampstands, He is looking and He is removing dross. And if we need that work, how much more will judgment be upon the ungodly? Upon the sinner? It's going to be terrible. We ought to care. We ought to care enough to exhibit Christ. Would you bow with me? And I would call upon us to pray together as a church that the Lord would turn over any table and any chair that is not focused upon the worship of, of, of God. As we serve together, I would pray that the Lord would lay it upon our heart that we would pray together more and more and more. To call upon the Lord, I would ask that He would purify not only the worship that we enjoy together, but our individual worship, our family worship, and the times of worship that you experience every day through the week. And if you are not, that that would begin. And then I would pray this morning that as the gospel is for all the nations, not just for us in America and not just for us in the church, but for all the people. I would pray that we would never, by our words, our attitudes, our actions, anything, never be a stumbling block for the gospel. For those who need to hear, whether it be our children, our coworkers, our friends, or a stranger on the street. Lord, as we are a royal priesthood, people for your own possession, then purify us with that special oil that ran down upon the head of Aaron that we read about in Psalm 133. Use that priestly oil to purify us that we might be those who proclaim your salvation, your greatness, and your glory until you come, Lord Jesus. So make us priests holy and make our lives worthy. Hear our prayer, O Lord. Incline your ear to us through Christ.